welcome to Keep Your Pecker Up Podcast. This is Debbie Mann coming to you from Kitchener, Ontario. And I'd like to welcome my guest, Kira. Kira, I forget your last name all of a sudden. <laughs> Kira Vermont. <laughs> I had it all there and it just escaped. I hate it when that happens. Do you want to do it again? Do it, do it yeah, again. Sure. Do it again. Okay. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> Take two. This is Debbie Mann with Keep Your Pecker Up podcast. I'm coming to you from Kitchener, Ontario. And my guest today is Kira Vermont. Kira, thank you so much and your patience with me. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to do this. I love podcasts. Me too. Me too. I find them very entertaining and interesting. Mm-hmm. This one can be too, um, even though it's on a very serious subject. Yeah. So we are talking about your breast cancer journey, which, you know, which is really not a fun topic in general, but, you know, meeting women like you have inspired me to do this podcast, if the truth be known, because I just feel that there's hope even when it looks like it's hopeless. So thank you for coming and joining me and doing this. So you have all, it's only been in the last what year so that you were diagnosed or two years? Yeah, I was first diagnosed in January, 2019. And what was, what was so wild about that? It was almost exactly a month after we'd just finished a huge home renovation, bricks and sticks completely down to nothing. We moved out of the house for nine months. And I remember doing an interview because I'm a reporter as well as an author with a woman who had stage four breast cancer. And talking to her, I'm like, oh yeah, I really should get on that again because I, I think it's been over a year since I've had my last mammo. Then in the middle of a renovation, I remember also thinking, but I don't have time for that right now. And what happens if I find out I have something? I'm in the middle of this big home reno. I'm sure I don't. I'm only like 45 years old. I probably don't have it. And we did the reno. And I was in the doctor and to see the doctor with my daughter who was uh, needed her for whatever reason. And I said to the doctor, oh, yeah, I think I probably should get a mammo. And I said, but and at that point, all this stuff had come out in the newspaper saying that perhaps we're having too many mammos too often, blah, 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 blah. And she said, well, I'm going to sign you up for one anyway. We'll set you up anyway. And I'm so glad she did because I almost said no. I, I almost said, I think, you know, I've been reading all these things about false positives and blah, blah, blah. So I went and this is about, about, about uh, yeah, almost a month after the reno was done and I got the call back. And I remember the moment I got that call where all she said, the, you know, the hospital called and said, um, we want you to come back for a second mammogram. And I was shaking when I got off the phone. I just knew there was something about this that I just knew that things were going to go south. So and this was just did. an annual checkup for you then? You didn't feel any lumps or? Nothing. Nope, nothing. Okay. Yeah, no, I had actually gone into Grand River to see the geneticist 10 years before because my mom had died of cancer, ovarian. And by back then, you know, there was a bunch of, there's tons of cancer in my family, but there wasn't quite enough for her to, to set me up for testing myself. And there was a lot going on behind the scenes from what I understand in terms of who was allowed to do the tests and how much they cost and blah, blah, blah. So I think I was caught up into some, in some sort of political wrangling at that point, but didn't realize it at the time, obviously. So I actually was on a sort of a sort of a watch and wait kind of list. So I was already getting colonoscopies. I was already getting my mammograms at 35. I was on that list. So thank goodness I was. Otherwise, I would have waited until I was 50 to get my first mammogram, mm. right? So we did yeah. find it. Yeah. Well, that's we good. It. So what happened after that? So you got your call and then did you yeah. go through the biopsy and everything as well? Yeah, I did. So I went in there and had my second uh, mammogram at uh, Guelph General and the sweet girl she comes back in she goes I'm sorry but you have to have a biopsy and I went 
oh, okay, all right. And can, I said, can I do that now? And she said, no, we don't have any available, avail no availability right now. And I said, she, and I, she saw my face was white, right? And she, she said, but if we have somebody who cancels, we'll get you in. And by the time I actually walked there and walked home, by the time I walked home about an hour later, not even that, I got a call from her saying, we've had a cancellation. And I don't think they really did. I think she put me in at the very end of the day because there was nobody behind me. So she uh, slipped me in that's... anyway. And within about, I think I had five or six days wait, and I got the call from my doctor's office. And I asked my doctor's uh, receptionist, should I bring my husband with me? Because at that point, I was doing so much research. I was like up all night researching and researching, like what, how, I knew all the stats, like how likely it was that, you know, what kind I was likely to have, blah, 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 you know, microcalcifications, what does that mean? I, I knew so much about her two positive and negative and everything within a week. And she said, yes, bring your husband. And that's what I knew. So yeah. yeah, and went in and I love a lovely, lovely uh, doctor. And she said, we found cancer cells. I love how she put it. We found cancer cells. And she said, but it's, it's DCIS, stage zero, sometimes we call it. Okay. She told me, and I said, okay, that's, and I was like, and actually, I think it was probably the first person in her office ever to go, yes, <laughs> when she told me I had DCIS. Like, so what, up. what does DCIS mean? Oh, what does it stand for? I always oh, forget. That's okay. Let's that's go. okay. We'll figure it. Yeah. Look uh, it up, everybody. Look it we'll up. Look it up. <laughs> <laughs> but so it stage means, zero. Stage zero. It means it's still stuck. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't become invasive yet. And I said, is there any chance that this could be different? It could be different than that. And she said, no, not really. But what I've discovered, you know, since then is if you're given a DCIS diagnosis, there's like a 23, 24% chance, according to statistics, according to research, that you will actually get a diagnosis later when they go in to, to cut you open and do all that good stuff that there's actually going to be some uh, invasive uh, cancer in there as well which is exactly what my story was so, so what happened so you went yeah. in for a lumpectomy then I did I did I went in for my lumpectomy and uh, thinking that all was going to be fine now my surgeon is fantastic and she said I, you know I'm just going to take out a little bit more just because I have, I see this thing behind it, the space, and it's just looking a little weird to me. So I'm going to take out more than I normally would. And I think she knew. And I said, okay, great. Take more out if you need to, whatever. I don't know. You're the surgeon. Um, and I trusted her quite a lot. I've heard, I had heard really good things about her. And uh, she did. She found more. And she found invasive cancer. And she said, okay, mm. you're up stage two uh, to stage one now. And she's now, I'm so sorry, Kira, I'm going to have to go in again because now I have to look at your lymph nodes because they, they weren't looking. They exactly. didn't look at them. Right. Yeah. Because it was supposed to just be DCIS. So, and they normally don't look for at lymph nodes at that point. So I had to go in for a second lumpectomy. And so they took out all that, took out more. And this time I went in to see my doctor and my surgeon, and she was not smiling this time. She was definitely not smiling. And she said, you know, so we found more, we found more cancer and your lymph nodes are positive. And so I had this funny little path report, pathology report, and uh, it was kind of an interesting thing because she's looking at it and I'm looking at it and it said two lymph nodes were positive or three, but it didn't say of how many. And you kind of need to know, is it like three of 18? Is it three of three? It's a big difference to, to know that. Yep. So yeah, so at that point, because I had the positive uh, lymph node, I had to go in and see the oncologist. It wasn't just going to be going to radiation like the, the original plan was. I had to go in and talk to her. And yes, so I got full-on chemo. I got the 16 weeks and I got uh, the five weeks of radiation. And then I also found out that I was BRCA2 positive. 
And yes. <laughs> so yeah, it just, I was joking that like, you know, there's only so many times you can call heads and get tails. And that's what was happening to me. Like I knew statistically all these things really shouldn't have happened to me, not at 46, 45, 46. And yet they kept getting, it just kept getting worse and worse. So in the end, we think that I was stage three. We may never know because, and we never, we actually don't know because luckily, luckily at the very end, when I was told, okay, you, now you definitely, you want to, you'll have to have a mastectomy because they couldn't get negative margins in the end. I went in for my, my bilateral mastectomy. And when I got my path report that time, the chemo had worked. They couldn't find anything. I got the clear, the all clear at that point. Now, is it still, you know, hanging around my bones? It's, is it still hanging around somewhere, a little bit somewhere? Who knows yet? But from what they could oh, tell, no. I got a really good path report back. Oh, that's good. That so you had a double mistake. That was the last good one. Uh-huh. Heads. The only one. Heads. <laughs> my only heads. <laughs> that was awesome. So you had a mastectomy then? I did. I had a double mastectomy and a bilateral mastectomy. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me the, the process in, in getting, making that decision. Well, I really, in some ways, I wasn't given much of a choice for the one side because I had a decision to make at one point. And I think all of that research that I had done, I am so glad I did that because I understood exactly what the surgeon was saying when we sat down to talk. I really, and I had a lot of questions for her. And one of the questions that I had was when we went in the first time and she thought that she actually had, she had negative margins. She didn't have, she looked like, you know, I got it all out, no problem. And the second time when she went in, she realized there was actually a lot more, but we chose to take out more after all, because I had a choice, lymph nodes or more. And I decided for lymph nodes and more. And the reason why I knew that is because even though all of the, the research again was saying, we didn't have to, they consider it negative and is a negative. If you have a negative margin, you're, you're okay. We, both of us just had this funny feeling that she should do it. So because when she went in there the second time and saw that there was still a lot more in there, you know, I had to get that breast gone. It just could stick around anymore because the radiation can only do so much. And if there was still a ton in there, there was no point. And then when I found out that I was bracket two positive, I didn't want to go through it again because it was just so crummy and, and it, it can kill you. So why would I, why would I keep the other one with bracket two? I had what a 60%, 80%, I can't remember what the, what the actual stats, it's high percent of it happening again. And my aunt has gone through it three times. So that Mm. just tells you that you don't want to do this and you don't want to mess around. And I end up having an oophorectomy as well. So yeah, an oophorectomy, which I think sounds like Dr. Seuss uh, came came up with it. (laughs) So explain. (laughs) Yes. So that is actually when they take out your ovaries and your fallopian tubes. Okay. I did, because that's another in the BRCA2 sort of pillar of all the different cancers you can get when you have that, uh, that diagnosis. Um, that's one of the other ones is, is, um, is ovarian cancer. Again, don't want to get it. And that one's quite high too. Not as high as somebody who's BRCA1, but when you're BRCA2, it's still quite high. So, and because my mother actually died of cancer of the nether regions, we were still not sure exactly where it started and where it ended, but just didn't want to take any chances there either. So I just, I took it out too. But man, oh man, four surgeries in under a year. In considering that I was originally diagnosed stage one or stage zero, like it just kept getting worse. And it's overwhelming, isn't it? It was. It was because every time I would get used to my stage, they would say, "Actually, <laughs> <laughs> let's. We're going to give you a. You know, we're going to turn the chapter on this one. We're going to give you a new chapter to read. Right? Like it was just 
it was just not fun. That was really hard. And I don't know though, is it, do you want to find out your stage three right from the beginning? And you have to go through that horrible thing of being a completely healthy person to stage three, or do you want to have like ripping that bandaid off slowly as you're going along over, over the course of four months? I don't know. I don't know, because I was told I had her too. You know, I was estrogen positive, her two positive, which is not always a good outcome mm-hmm. without her septum there's not always a good outcome on that. And I don't know what's worse or better, really. I don't know. I don't think you do know. I I think one of the things, and I keep talking about this, is your story is your story and your journey is your journey. And you don't know any other way, right? This is how it was presented to you. And Mm -hmm. you just got to deal with with the cards as they're dealt or the dice as they're thrown, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you just have to hold on tight. I remember the best thing that my oncologist said to me at one point when she told me, okay, you're going to have to have a mastectomy in, you know, four months or five months, whenever chemo's over, she just, just hold on, hold on, hold on. And I just kept thinking about that, holding on during all of that, because that's all you can do. You just have to get through it. You can't go around it. You got to go through it. There is no going around it. (laughs) Although some people try and uh, it just doesn't work. No. no. So bracket two, are you able to explain what bracket two is? Yeah, sure. Well, kind of. I mean, basically. Just in layman terms, right? Yeah, Yeah. sure. For sure. So basically it's, it's a gene abnormality that my family has. And so it turns out that my great grandmother died of breast cancer. My great aunt died of breast cancer. My aunt has had it three times. Uh, This is on my dad's side of the family. And my dad, when I asked him about it, you know, 10 years ago, he was like, oh, I think think we're all fine. I think we're all fine. (laughs) Wish I'd known the whole story. But anyway, and then my cousin died of pancreatic cancer when she was 41, I believe, just had a baby. And those are all in the same pillars. These, this is, you know, and also there's, um, uh, what is it? It's uh, for the guys. The guys have their own issue. I can't remember exactly which one it is. Uh, prostate cancer. And it's yes. sort of an aggressive prostate cancer though on that side. So there's this pillar of the horribles. And basically you have a 50% chance of getting it if your parent has it. And my children have a 50% chance now of having this because I tested positive. My sister had tested negative. She did not have it. And my brother tested positive. Oh, interesting. So now so, his children have to be checked as well. Wow. So that's interesting because it, it may not go from child to child. You could buy, one of you could bypass it. Uh, yeah. I mean, if it turns out that both my children don't have it and they, they won on the 50% uh, flip of the coin, then that's it for our side of the family, for my, my little uh, genealogical. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, but I don't know. It's so hard to get your head wrapped around it because, but at least they have a choice now. At least they have an option to look into it. And they both, they do want to look into it and find out what they are. And my daughter can have choices. She can have her kids and then decide, okay, my breasts are gone. My ovaries are gone. And they can also choose which embryos they want to use as well in order to make sure that it isn't passed down to their children as well. There's a lot out there now that wasn't there 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And how old are your kids now? Your girls? Uh, 18 and 13. My son's okay. 18. My daughter's 13. Okay. So your daughter mm-hmm. understands that now. I'm not talking about it too much with her. I don't want to freak her out. Yeah, think, yeah. Because she can't be tested until she's at least 18 anyway. I was just going to ask you, what what age can they do it? I don't know yeah. if I would do it at 18. I think no. that's... It's too young. To yeah, they don't, out. and they don't have to. Usually it happens yeah. in their 20s. Yeah. Know? Then you've yeah. got some time to get yourself prepared for whatever it is that you want to do before you start you know, yanking stuff off of you okay? <laughs> and out of you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, at least in, uh, yeah, 
when she does it, the technology may change all over again. So, And that's exactly it, right? Because, you know, the geneticist said, the counselor, she said, really don't get too freaked out right now because who knows what's going to happen in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Like there could be so many things that happen. So we'll just, we'll count, we'll just figure it out when we get to that point. Yeah. And you're not at that point yet. So you had 16 weeks of radiation. So was that... 16 weeks of chemo. Oh, sorry, chemo and five of radiation. Yeah, Yeah. 25. Yeah, the 25 of radiation as well. And did you have any special uh, chemo treatments or was it? It was just the regular old AC Taxol. Yes, lost feeling in my fingers and toes towards the end of it. But I have to say that the meds that they give you before you go into chemo, great, man, I was up all night. I watched Stranger Things from the beginning (laughs) to the end. (laughs) And it was like, I think the night after chemo or something when my, the steroids were like kicking in and like I had so much energy. That was awesome. And then, and then I just fell apart, right? Like yeah, on the Saturday yeah. morning, two days later. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I, I remember going in and being a motor mouth, you know, friends would just kill themselves laughing because I can keep a conversation going, but man, on steroids, it's just... <laughs> It's a conversation on steroids. <laughs> no, you know, no room for breathing. It's just, you know, nobody gets to have a have a say when I'm on steroids. So that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I had. Did you have any problems in it? I had lots of problems in in treatment. So in, with chemo, I was actually pretty darn lucky overall. I did have a problem with my port where I developed a blood clot sort of just above it. I still have an issue. I don't know, we're on Zoom right now, so you might be able to see it. But there's like a me, me, me right Oh, there. I see that. Yep. Yeah. There's a kind of a sticking out there along my neck. And that was scary. Luckily, one of my oldest best friends is a hematologist in Toronto. And she happened to be there that day. She came, she drove to Waterloo and took me to for my last chemo session with my husband. And so she was there talking away with my oncologist all about this, you know, this lump in my neck and all of that, what to do about it. So it was great to have a hematologist that deals with blood stuff, blood cancers to be standing <laughs> right there with your oncologist and they're chatting it up. And it was, it was quite funny. So I think really that was the only huge issue. I mean, it's all the garbage with, that goes with chemo. You know, I said, I joked, it was like somebody came along and said, you have the flu and somebody says, here, try some poison. How you know, what could possibly go wrong? There's a lot of javics. Or I'd say, you know, it's kind of like you're dragging, like one eighth of your body has died. I was trying to explain what it feels like when, when you're on chemo. It's like one eighth of your body is, has died and you're dragging it around with you. And, but that's kind of what's actually happened to you. One eighth, or I don't know how much of your body is actually dying, but that's what's happening. Yeah. And you're living with all these dead cells that, oh, it's just gross. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah, I had too much time on my hands. <laughs> but, it was all those steroids. <laughs> all those steroids. Oh, my, my brain was working like crazy during, during treatment. I have to say that I think that what saved me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up something because I'm here in my office anyway. So there's this book here. Yeah. And it's a journal that my daughter gave me for Christmas before I found out that I had cancer. And um, it's, it really saved me. I think that's actually what kept me going through it. And I, I didn't want to sit there with my journal and write my three pages every morning like I used to, because I was so much in my head anyway. It was going 100 miles an hour anyway. So what I ended up doing was I just started writing just random thoughts. Just and there was, some of them are hilarious. Like they really are. They're just like the weirdest thing that sort of goes through your brain. Like there's one time where I was like, I'd lost all my hair, and I came up with this thing where it's like, you know, chemo upside 187, and there's no there's no 186 before, but <laughs> yeah. random numbers, right? Because I thought that was hilarious. If somebody finds a hair in their soup, 
no one looks at you. And that was an upside of chemo. <laughs> and, I, and this book is full of these things, right? And oh, you should write a book on it. Everybody keeps saying that to me. I think it'd be, I don't know. Is there a need for another key or another cancer book? There's so many I, out there. Yeah, but they're all, yeah, but that one sounds funny. There are I know there's mm -hmm. someone out there who is, uh, has a website of things not to say to a cancer patient. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any like, of those? Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I kept getting it over and over again. Somebody would say, oh, you've just been diagnosed with cancer. I have a friend who's dying of cancer. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm just learning of having cancer, right? You don't want to be in that club yet, right? You don't want to be in that club. <laughs> And so oh I would, I actually started shutting those conversations down. I'd say, and I'm not the kind of person who does that normally. I, you know, I let people go, but I'm like, I'm so sorry. I cannot talk about that right now. I cannot hear about your friend. And it's not that I don't care about your friend. I probably care more about your friend than most people do because I understand what she's going through, but I cannot be thinking about dying from this when I've just been told I have it. Not yeah, yet. A little you know, too early. I, I'm not dead until I'm dead. You yep, know? I agree. Yeah. You just got to go for it. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Any other side effects? Other, did the feeling in your, the neuropathy come, did you get feeling back? And... Yeah, I do. I can feel my fingers now, which is good because I type all day long. Okay. So <laughs> that is a good thing to be that able is. to feel my fingers when I'm typing. Let's see my feet. I still have a lot of pains though, because I'm on an astrazole. I'm on, on more meds because I'm estrogen positive. And also because they took out my ovaries, you know, why not put me on the anastrozole instead of uh, the, the other one. So. I'm, I'm sore. I'm really sore. And oh, I, yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, when I get up from like the couch, I'm watching television up towards the end of the night, it's really hard to get downstairs. I feel like I'm 87 years old instead of 47. And that is just part of it. And I'm trying to, and I have learned though, that exercise really helps that the days that I'm, you know, especially in the middle of the pandemic, like we are right now, putting aside a half an hour a day to, to stretch and to exercise made a huge difference. Definitely. Did you take advantage of the WellFit program or anything like that? Okay, they didn't have it in Guelph, but no, we have the Encore program at the Y. Okay, and and I have done that, and it it was really fun. I've met some great people. I did not do WellFit, but the funny thing about WellFit, just because it was going to be such a drive from Guelph to Waterloo, which is about forty five minutes away, but I used to write, and I still do, University of Waterloo. I write for them and do some brochures and whatever website articles. And I actually wrote their website for the WellFit program like years before, oh, like, really? like, like a decade ago. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm looking at this now. And I'm like, like <laughs> words sound familiar. Those interviews sound familiar. Oh, like oh yeah, that was me. I wrote this. <laughs> So I write too much. Like I've got so many projects on the go. So I think anybody who has access to that program, I've heard really good things. I remember touring their facility and being really impressed. Go for it because it really does make you feel better. It does. Mm -hmm. It really does. There. And the other thing too is going there. You can go bald. You don't. You don't have to worry about wearing a scarf or a wig because right. everybody there has either been bald or will be bald. Right. That's right. And yeah, there's right. some like no shame in it nobody looking at you weird nobody mm -hmm. challenging you, or you know asking questions I never minded questions but right nobody giving you that I can't I mean <laughs> you're gonna see the face hmm. you know that sympathy or that this. that's right uh, that sympathy face right or that oh you poor you it's like yeah. oh, no, not 
Yeah. And I still get that. I mean, I still get that because I have had a mastectomy, a double mastectomy, and I decided not to have reconstruction, at least so far, but I'm just so done with the surgery. I just don't want to even think about it anymore. So I only in the last like three or four weeks even have I even started really wearing my knitted knockers. That's what I'm using right now. I love those knitted knockers. They are so soft. I feel like I'm walking around hugging a plush animal. Like it's just, you know, stuffy. It's great. Um, And I don't know, I used to call them names, but I won't talk about that. Um, You know what, I wasn't wearing them at all um, until the last, I'd say probably the last month or so. And you know what, it's actually made a real difference because I was getting, and all I was getting looks with every time I'd walk out, even though I have a lot of friends and all my friends know what's what's happened to me. And I know a lot of people. And so, and I had huge outpourings of support when people found out meals coming in for months and months and months, but you know, you, you still see their eyes dart down to your chest and up again. And I don't blame them because it looks weird. It really does. I look like an eight-year-old on top if I'm not wearing my boobs. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, I, but you know, it's really nice to have that option now to put something in and yeah. It's funny, you know, because I belong to a dragon boat team, as you know, mm-hmm, and right. um, some of the women have had double mastectomies and I still look, I haven't, mm-hmm. but every once in a while, I, you know, it's like, oh yeah, you know, and that's right. It doesn't look what they're, you're used to. It doesn't look like that. Well, I'm not sure what they were supposed to look like, to be honest mm-hmm. with you, because I didn't know them before this. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> but just in general, I think just yeah. the fact when you see somebody with a completely flat chest, like it is not the same thing as having size eight. Like it just it is mm-hmm. not the same thing. Having any little bit of bump there, what your brain would fill it in and it, it's all good. When somebody sees a completely flat chest and let's face it, and your ribs stick out. If you are completely flat, it's a very different body shape. It's not what you're expecting. And I don't begrudge anybody who looks at me when I'm not wearing the boobs, but it's still hard. It's still not an easy thing because it reminds me that I look different now. On the outside. Yeah. Yeah. And how are you coping with all of that? Because one of the, I asked a friend of mine once, and if you don't want to answer this, like don't. I'm an open, it's okay. Okay. But your femininity, Mm -hmm. like, do you feel... Because it's only been a year, let's face it, for you. Not even that. Not even that, right? right? So how do you feel around that? Or do you, have you even thought of it? Oh, I've totally thought of it. It's really hard. It's really hard because not only do I have no estrogen rolling through my body at all, I don't have a chest at all. And it's not like I had a massive one to begin with. But right now, like I joke with my husband, it's like some kid, some little kid came up to me and took an eraser and just rubbed up my boobs <laughs> and just left me there. And it's kind of what it looks like. It like then took a, like a, I don't know, a red marker and just went right across my chest, right? That's all that I have left. Mm. And it's really hard because it's not like I think that having boobs makes me more of a woman, but just the whole thing. My hair used to be long. We were just talking about before we, we got on this call that my hair used to be quite long and, and dark and it's come in and it's, you know, a lot grayer than I realized it was. And it's short right now. And it's nutty because we're in the middle of the pandemic and I haven't had a haircut since March, 2019. <laughs> right. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So uh, this is all baby hair that's, that's coming in right now. I look completely different than I did a year ago. And I think when I got that first phone call saying, please come back, we need you to come back for another mammogram. It's like I, my brain went kaboom and I saw all this like a year later. Mm. I just had a feeling I knew where this was going, but you don't really know until you go through it. And do I feel as much like a woman? You know what? I really don't. It's horrible to say, but I don't feel like myself yet. I'm getting there. Like really slowly I'm getting there, but I am definitely not there yet. I don't feel like myself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I say this because I haven't had it, but boobs doesn't make a woman, right? I oh, mean, that's I just, yeah. but yeah, it's all a mind thing. You have to wrap your head around it. Mm-hmm. And and I was talking to another woman on my team who had gotten a mistake, had gotten implants. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, they're nothing like your own boobs. No. They're just nothing like your own boobs. But when you put a bra on, it's, you it know, at shape. least you've got the shape. Yeah. And yeah, we're so indoctrinated into what that shape should be. That's right. Well, we grew up with it too. (laughs) Oh, it's so true. Oh, it's so true. All that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Stuffing your bra and all that. But I think for me, because I think the one thing that I was really worried about was that part of my job, I'm also a children's author, right? So part of my job is to get in front of a room full of kids. Sometimes there's a thousand of them. And, you know, I'm like, how am I going to pull this off? How am I going to pull off doing this flat? Because, you know, kids are awesome. They'll say, hey, you look weird. (laughs) They probably wouldn't. Like, they're not going to say that they're looking at a woman's chest, really. They really won't. But if it was something else, I'm sure they would have had, they would have no problem talking about it. But it was going through my mind. And, and I actually, I kind of like threw myself into the flame. So Gosh, I can't believe I did this. So five days after I had my bilateral mastectomy, I was doing, I was at Word on the Street in Toronto doing a presentation in front of a tent full of parents and kids. I, and I did not realize this at the time, but I was developing a post-surgery infection. I woke up that morning and I'm like, I don't feel as well as I did yesterday, but I got to get in the car and go to Toronto and do my presentation. And because, you know, and they said, you know, if you don't want to do it, like my publisher was awesome and did not force me to do anything. But for me, I just needed to do it. I just had to get in front of everybody. I had the craziest getup. I still have my drains in. So I had, I know, it was like, I was insane. I was supposed to have my surgery. Like, I think it was like the Friday before. And then I was going to have it over, I think about a week and a half, maybe 10 days before I had to do this presentation. Even that was kind of iffy. And then my last surgery, my last, my mastectomy was pushed off to the Tuesday because sort of personal issues for my surgeon. So I only had the five days. And so I had my, I had a shirt on and undershirt on. I sort of clipped all of my drains, my five drains onto that little undershirt. And then I put another undershirt over that to keep them all in place so they wouldn't go, go traveling. And then I put a big, like sort of flowy white shirt over that. And then I got up in front of all these kids with this totally crazy get up. And none of them would have known. And I was bald and I had my wig on, right? It was like total chaos this uh this tent full of they had no clue and but it's funny there I did this other one this other presentation I was writing a book for the with the Ontario Science Center and so I went to the Science Center and it was like 11 days after my last chemo and you know how it, it accumulates and becomes worse and worse as you go and I thought I'd probably be feeling better 11 days off oh no so I show up and I'm supposed to be doing four presentations that day and I was there with my illustrator, Suharo, and she's wonderful. And she said, if you need me to take over, and just I said, maybe some days or some, at some point, I'm going to just sit down and you could just draw for the kids for a while because she's the illustrator. And I didn't have to do that. I did all the presentations. But there's this hilarious photo of the two of us together at the end of the day. And we're in front of the big cutout of this character that from the book. And, and we it's on the on the desk in front of us and I'm holding on to the desk and she's kind of holding on to the desk. But if you're looking at my hands, they're totally white knuckling because I'm holding myself up trying to make sure that I don't like faint in front Lots. of the children. <laughs> yes. So, but you know what? I had to do these things. I just felt like I had to stay in the game because part of it is I'm a freelancer. Part of it is I'm an author and I could not... I, Part of it is I, I just love doing what I do. and But part of it is also self-preservation. I did not want to let any of the publishers know how sick I was. Mm. 
because I didn't want anybody to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't give her the next book. Maybe she's just a little too sick for this, or maybe she's going to die. Like I could not let that go in through their brain. Wow. See, I would have never thought of something like that. I thought about it for work because I worked through my chemo, Mm -hmm. which is like, I, I empathize with you because I started in February and I had to end my job at the in May because I, I got chemo brain I mean yeah. I couldn't remember things and yeah I, and you and it's just you're feeling awful it just yeah. I mean you have cycles but you, I'm sure you worked with the cycles too like I did at some point right I did but yeah. I mean you just feel like you're getting back on track again so you're only yeah. there 50% of the time anyways with all your doctor's appointments exactly. and yeah. blood and getting your blood tested and all mm-hmm. of that stuff it was yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. it's, it's really hard. Um, my favorite story about working, because I worked as well all the way through it. I was just doing my taxes recently and I found I had 35 invoices from last year. I did 35 projects. How did I, how did I do that? I have no clue because I was like diagnosed in January. It's not like it was August. Right. Um, but my favorite part of working was I was working on an article for the Globe and Mail about how to work smarter, not harder. And you know, I love writing that kind of stuff. And so I interviewed this one woman and she was an expert on this sort of topic and I'm interviewing her and I'm really sick. It's right in the middle of chemo and she starts to like lose it. And she's like, you know, I, I can't remember this one guy's name, blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, I'm so sorry. I have to let you know that I've just been through chemo, like a cancer treatment and I've got chemo brain. And so I'm having a hard time remembering this guy's name. And I said, well, you're gonna love this. I'm lying down on the floor right now in my <laughs> office doing this interview because I'm right in the middle of cancer treatment. <laughs> And we killed ourselves laughing. It was the funniest thing we thought because here are two women. Like it's leave it to women to do. Like we're so resilient. She's doing this interview. She doesn't have to. Like, and she's in the middle of this horrible stuff. I'm in the middle of this horrible stuff, and we're still talking to each other and pretending that everything's totally fine. It just told me everything I needed to know about women. <laughs> we rock, man. We Even rock. through all of this. I mean, I have to tell you, in the chemo suite. I met some remarkable women, you know, and the other thing, and, and, and again, I repeat myself to those who are listening, you know, cancer doesn't care who you are, how healthy you are, how unhealthy you are, nothing. It cares nothing about that. And, you know, we keep on going, you know, cause mm-hmm. there's a life, nobody's there to pick up the pieces for you. No. I mean, I'm, I'm single. So it's kind of like, yeah. I have to do all this stuff. And my pride, I mean, my pride is way too, too big. <laughs> Pride is your identity. Unfortunately, you know, it it, it works for me sometimes, Mm -hmm. but man, in moments like that, when, when I need people, it's hard for me to ask for help and, and know that it has beaten me. It was hard to accept that yeah, cancer got me, that the chemo got me. I've got to step aside now. And, and, you know, in hindsight, I wish I'd done it earlier, but because it's a long journey back. And then I went right back, you know, I went back to work as soon as I, well, as soon as I could physically, but mm-hmm. probably six months too early. Because I feel the chemo, same way. Yeah. yeah. Because chemo brain is real. People don't believe it, but it's real. And, you know, when I went back to work and somebody would ask me a question, it was like, I haven't got a clue. Yeah, you know, six right. months before it would like roll off the top of my head. Yeah. And then I had friends say, well, you know, Debbie, it's because you're getting older. It's like, no, no. <laughs> Poisoned. I've been poisoned. poisoned. <laughs> yes. That's actually what's happening. Excuse me if I have a little bit of a brain fart here, but I've yeah. been poisoned. I have been. <laughs> I actually feel like I went back to work too soon. I mean, I didn't. I didn't fully stop, but 
I needed to take time off. I wish I'd been able to take time off and just sit with this. And I kept meaning to, and then, you know, kids got sick and were home and then all of a sudden it was Christmas and then the pandemic hit. And I'd also agreed to do a book um, at, <laughs> I just said, oh yeah, I just agreed to do a book, but I wrote a book <laughs> between, you know, January and March. And then literally the next day, the pandemic hit. So I never wow. got a chance and everybody's in the house with me right now, which is not my normal way of being. I usually like to have some quiet time in my own house while they're all away. I so, hear but it would be really nice. I think and I think that ship has sailed now. I think actually I'm okay. I don't think I need the rest quite as much because now what I'm doing is I'm, because of the pandemic and I'm not working as much as I was anyway, because all of, you know, things have just totally imploded in journalism. And a lot of my clients, they're just not doing a lot of work right now. Advertising is down. You know, I'm just having fun writing all that stuff that I never get around to. So it's that has been my rest and for the last you know, I'd say three or four weeks I've been having so much fun just working on fiction for kids and picture books for kids and all the stuff that I've been meaning to work on for so long I'm finally doing it so for me that's I'm just so loving life I'm loving that's what great. I'm doing now yeah that's wonderful yeah that's cool mm -hmm. well thank you do you have anything else that you that you'd like to say or to offer or you know what I think for me right the only advice I'd give is write things down, whichever, whatever way that works for you. I mean, when you're in the middle of treatment or afterwards, just write it out. Because what I find it does, like if you don't do that, your brain and your thoughts just roll away and run away from you. And it's really hard to keep your footing in the middle of all this. But what writing does is it actually gives your thoughts structure and it puts parameters around them. And you write it out, you get it down on a page, and then you can go back and actually read what you've written. And suddenly it just takes on a different feeling, like you're watching a video as opposed to you being, you starring in the video. And that little bit of separation is really important for mental health. I think a lot of people don't realize that. And the other thing is sing, if you can. Sing, sing, sing. I know right now we were, it's harder to do because we're home. But I'm part of a choir in Guelph. One of your other guests, Emily, came up to me after one of my concerts. And I actually did two concerts in the middle of chemo. Again, I don't know how I did it. It was both two, two concerts in one day. It was our 10th anniversary for this big choir I'm part of, Guelph Community Singers. And if I didn't have singing during treatment and choir, and I actually run and help run a, a small choir within the big choir in my house. And to have 15, 20 people show up when you are in the middle of all this garbage and your hair is gone and everything, and we're sitting or standing in my kitchen in my dining room, this beautiful house that we finally created, and we're all singing down to the river to pray, or I can see clearly now, and we're doing four-part harmonies my goodness, like, it's amazing. It's just amazing how much joy that gives you and how much happiness that gives you. And I think between writing and singing, that really, really kept me sane through all this. And, and lots of conversations with friends and lots of walks. One of my dearest friends, Amy, she was knocking on my door every other day with soup or let's go out for a walk or let, like, and let me do something for you. Or here's some bread that my husband made for you. Or it was just, you know, those friendships are so important when you're going through something so horrible. I agree. Mm -hmm. They really are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're your yeah. sounding board too, even if they don't understand. Yeah. The best, the best people are, even though they've never been through it, they listen and they ask the right questions and they never make you feel like you're less than you were before. And oh my goodness, was I ever lucky to have so many people like that in my life. Yeah. You are blessed. That's I for sure. sure. Am. <laughs> I really am. I totally know it too. I know it. <laughs>
I hope everybody has so many people, you know, and I know that not everybody does. So it's, uh, you know, give me a call sometime. <laughs> you, I will. Right, you know, for anybody who's listening, like I'm easy to find online. Just give me a shout if you, you need somebody to say it's going to be okay, because it's going to be okay. And it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you for doing this with me, Kara. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on, on the Keep Your Pecker Up podcast. And we'll see you on the next one. Bye.